With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ten, nine. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Three. Not because they are easy, two, but because they are hard. One, zero. KFI presents. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Cool Space News. With your host, Rod Pyle. Hello and welcome to Cool Space News, the last podcast recorded on the Cheap Equipment Edition. Since the last time we got together, I sat down on my podcasting station only to find that my venerable Sterling radio microphone had given up the ghost after only 10 years, damn thing. So I'm pinch hitting with a Sennheiser OmniMic, the kind that singers, you know, people with actual voice talent, use handheld, which is not optimal for podcasts. So I went out and dropped close to a grand on a new setup today, buying the same model microphone that Michael Jackson used to record Thriller. Let's hope that some of that success rubs off, without all the plastic surgery, I mean. I know that's questionable taste, but come on, it's me. You're used to it. So, heck, it's May already, and with May comes June, and with June, July. And with July, Apollo 11 50th anniversary fever is upon us. In case you hadn't noticed, the anniversary goodness is beginning to heat up. And I intend to take full advantage of it. Author, opportunist, take your pick. I don't mind. It's all part of the trade. By the way, for those of you who have not gone out to see the Apollo 11 feature documentary playing the theater these days, uh, actually, it's beginning to leave the theater, so you should do it sooner than later. It's well worth it. I uh, put that off for some time because I've been so immersed in Apollo lore for, well, the last couple of years on this recent book, the Apollo 11 50th anniversary book that I wrote and in articles and other writings general that I thought I could afford to wait a while. But I finally went down to the local art house and saw it on a medium-sized screen, and I have to say it's spectacular. Among other things, this particular filmmaker went out and found the only cache of 70-millimeter film, that's 7.0, so a nice big frame about the size of a playing card, a little smaller, uh, 70-millimeter film of the Saturn V launches and launch preparation. And I have to tell you, after years of seeing reprocessed grainy 16 millimeter film and interpositives, it's really spectacular to see it in 70 millimeter. It's uh, it's a tearful moment for a lot of people, and I really enjoyed it. The entire film was produced in a real time sort of stream of consciousness, you are there style. So there's no formal voiceover. It's all uh, taken from the actual archives of that moment. And the only thing approaching a voiceover is Walter Cronkite doing his news read. So it's really quite a splendid experience and, and well worth the price of admission. Go see it twice. My new book, with a forward by our favorite astronaut Buzz Aldrin himself, sold out its first print run in just a few hours last month. I love saying that because it doesn't happen to me very often. So I'm going to say it again. Sold out, sold out, sold out. I ah, yes, joy, rapture, and royalties. At any rate, the publisher has printed plenty more of them, and the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever fine books are sold, as the old saying goes. On May 7th, Heroes of the Space Age hit the shelves, with eight chapters of Space Age wonderfulness inside. What's that, you say? Is my favorite hero included? 
Well, they might be and they might not be. You'll have to check out the table of contents to be sure. Seriously, it was a hell of a tough choice to pick just a handful of people from that era, eight to be precise. And there were so many incredible folks to choose from, I probably excluded one or two of your top 10. So campaign with me for a sequel. There's lots more to write, maybe 10 books more. Yeah, I can do that. Cards and letters should go to Prometheus Publishing. Space 2.0 continues to sell briskly, so don't miss out. Buy 10 copies a day for you and your friends. They will love you for the gift. And the same goes for Interplanetary Robots. Both are for sale all over the place, so get them while they're hot. All right, that's the end of the book commercials. Now for some event updates. Last Sunday, I moderated a panel of Space Age Notables at the beautiful Columbia Memorial Space Museum in Downey, California. If you haven't been there, you should check it out. It's located on the grounds of the old North American Rockwell plant and hosts a variety of exhibits from that aerospace heavyweight in its heyday. It's a neat place, and the event was full to the brim with enthusiastic people. It was really great. Too bad you missed it. On May 18th, I'll be giving a live talk at the San Fernando Valley Arts and Cultural Center in Tarzana, California. It starts at 7 p.m. I'd love to see you there. We'll discuss the space age from start to finish and then the pivot into space 2.0. On May 23rd, I'll be at Roman's Books in Pasadena, my old hometown, to talk about heroes of the space age. That's an evening slot as well. I'll probably get peppered by 20 or 30 questions I can't remember the answers to. So note to self, no more four books in a year schedules, please. I also have future events in D.C. in June and in D.C. again in September at the Smithsonian. More detail on those as they come along. All right, that's enough about me, honestly. On to the headlines. Panspermia what? Panspermia. That's such an enticing word. Despite whatever you might be thinking, it's the process of the ingredients of life spreading from one planet to another. It's been suggested for years, actually since the 5th century BC, if you can believe it, that life on Earth may have originated elsewhere, including on Mars. That planet matured much more quickly than our own. But a new study by the Southwest Institute suggests that this process may extend beyond our solar system. Objects like Oumuamua, the cigar-shaped rock that made an arc through our solar system last year, may be much more common than we thought. Oumuamua's weird behavior as it passed the sun, it accelerated a bit as it left our part of the solar system, suggests that ices were heated and turned into propulsive gas during Oumuamua's passage around our sun, which means that ice can survive voyages of interstellar distances. If true, so could elements or critters frozen in that ice, especially if it's located inside rocky pockets on the asteroid where it would be protected from the worst of interstellar radiation and temperature extremes. Oumuamua, I love saying that, may have been traveling for more than 10 million years before passing Earth, which is a really long trip between restroom breaks. I'll just add to this a little bit that a more recent follow-up to the story, some of the astronomers involved with the study said, you know, we think these things are so common, there might be as many as one a year or even one a month passing through our solar system, and we should keep an eye out for more of them because we can learn a lot from objects that come from other stars. So uh, apparently, interstellar travelers are much more common than we thought. They just don't happen to have living beings in them as far as we know, but they may have prebiotic ingredients or actual critters on board. So if there are microbes there, maybe we'll find them on Earth. Maybe we are descendants of those things. We'll see. Death from above. What will we do when that giant asteroid scheduled to smack Earth in 2027 arrives? This was the question facing NASA, the European Space Agency, and others last week during a workshop simulating an earthly disaster scenario. 
simulating being the key word. The good news here is that the scheduled asteroid strike they used is fictional, though some who saw the tweets from the event assumed it was real, Shades of the War, the world's radio broadcast of 1938. But the process being planned is indeed headed into reality. This fictional asteroid called 2019 PDC was pegged at between 300 and 1,000 feet across in this exercise. Certainly not a major heavyweight as asteroids go. Some of the ancient impacts, such as the one that killed the dinosaurs, were caused by asteroids that were miles across. So this one isn't too big. Nonetheless, the scientists gaming this scenario estimated a 10% chance of an impact on Earth, and that impact would be enough to throw our environment into a real tizzy. Crops could fail, livestock could die. It would be a very bad day, very bad year, very bad period of time. In reality, there are about 900 such asteroids called near-Earth objects or NEOs in the neighborhood of our planet on a regular basis. Various scenarios were games such as slamming a spacecraft into the asteroid to divert it away from Earth. And in fact, such an effort is being undertaken as a test in the early 2020s by NASA's double asteroid redirection test, known as DART, which will slam a spacecraft into a small asteroid and measure the deflection, if any. So there is hope should such a scenario occur, which it didn't, but it will, and it will take a lot more funding to make a meaningful response a reality. Are you listening to me, Congress? Exploding dragons. On April 20th, during a routine test of the abort system of SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, one of the Super Draco thrusters that would be used to whisk the capsule away from a malfunctioning Falcon booster malfunctioned. A large cloud of orange smoke was seen by eyewitnesses who also heard a bang far from the test area at Cape Canaveral, leading to speculation that an engine had exploded on the spacecraft. On May 2nd, SpaceX and NASA finally confirmed that there had indeed been an explosion and that the capsule, which recently flew a test run to the space station, had in fact been destroyed. This is a fairly sizable setback to SpaceX's efforts to begin ferrying crews to the space station this later this year and will likely push the date of the first crewed flight well past the originally planned summer date. An unauthorized video of the explosion showed up on the web and prompted SpaceX to let its employees know, in no uncertain terms, that this was a fireball offense. Don't do it. Fortunately, the company has other Crew Dragon spacecraft in various stages of assembly, so the delay should not be a long one. Additionally, the malfunction appears to have not been caused by the rocket engine itself, although SpaceX has not been specific about what else might have caused it, but perhaps it's a procedural issue of some kind that we dealt with quickly. In any case, the company has a lot of work to do to assure NASA and the crews that will be flying the capsule that it will be a safe ride to orbit. So get busy, SpaceX. Bees in space. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A recent launch of supplies to the International Space Station included two very special bees in the payload. These were not insects, in fact, but rather small robots called astrobees that are designed to help with routine chores aboard the station. In recent years, as the 20-year-old ISS has aged, the astronauts crewing it have spent up to half their available time doing maintenance tasks, and this detracts from valuable time that could be spent on more productive jobs. At first, the twin robots, each of which is about the size of a small loaf of bread, 
will take on such routine chores as tracking down lost items in the space station. Objects do frequently drift away from the astronauts and become hidden throughout the ISS, and it takes time to track them down. The Astrobees are propelled by small electric fans and have cameras and positioning systems included, and even a little gripping claw, making them ideal for carrying small experimental payloads as well. If the Astrobees are successful, expect more of the pint-sized robots to be set up soon. That's all the space news that's fit to print for now. Let's move on. It's time for Cool Space Views, where we round up experts in spaceflight and space history to share their thoughts on specific subjects. Actually, lately, I've only been rounding up one, Jay Galantine, but because I like Jay, and apparently you do too, I thought I'd ask him again. So I said, hey, Jay, what are you talking about at Space Fest this year, which is an annual event held in Tucson each summer, especially since this is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. I was curious. Here's what he had to say. You know, Apollo 11, of course, is all over the place, not just because of the first man movie, but it's the 50th anniversary of the landing this year and everything. And so I thought I would sort of ride side saddle on that Apollo 11 bandwagon and do something on on the Soviets last ditch Hail Mary attempt to upstage Apollo 11 with a spacecraft that I'm sure you know about called Luna 15. And it launched just two or three days before Apollo 11 did. And it was put up there, a a complete rush job. And the whole idea was to just take some of the shine off of Apollo 11. It was going to be this lander that would uh, send a drill down to the surface and, and drill up a core sample and pop it into a little ball that would rocket off the top and come back and ideally land in the Soviet Union ahead of Apollo 11's return so that the Soviets could like stand up on the rooftops and scream out that they were the first ones to have a lunar sample, which is <laughs> kind of a jerk move, kind of a Soviet thing to do. They had really lost the game, though. I mean, in terms of the space race here, and, and it wasn't Apollo 11 even. Uh, in my opinion, it was Apollo 8. I mean, when Apollo 8 happened, uh, my opinion is that they knew at that point that it was just completely game over and they had to try and save face however they possibly could. And Luna 15 was sort of their last attempt to save face. And I don't want to spoil it or anything, but... But I thought it might be nice to sort of look at what was happening on the other side of the Iron Curtain at the time Apollo 11 was happening. And I I covered that stuff in one of my books. And uh, the launch of Luna 15 absolutely freaked out Christopher Kraft, uh, who was in the process of trying to get Apollo 11 off the ground. Uh, He didn't know exactly what the Soviets were doing, and he didn't have time to track it down himself. So he sent Frank Borman on this little uh, trip of a mission to figure out what Frank could. Uh, now, now Frank had one foot in retirement. Uh, he wasn't flying anymore. He was the White House liaison to NASA because that was a good thing to do for a couple years until his Air Force pension was fully vested. And Frank probably would not have been the first choice on anybody's tongue to try and figure out what the Soviets were doing with a, an unmanned spacecraft. Why would you contact this guy? You know, he wasn't like the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. 
or anything. Um, but according to Kraft, he, he picked Frank because he knew him and because just a couple weeks before, Borman and his whole family had gone to the Soviet Union on a trip. And Kraft was like, you know, maybe he'd run into somebody who would know something about this. And it turned out that that's exactly what had happened. Uh, Borman did happen to have a chance meeting with a, a person who was not uh, the, the key architect uh, and, and controller, project manager, whatever, of Luna 15, but, but someone who was very much in the know and in a position to communicate with the other people. And so it ended up being uh, this, this wonderful little story about the two sides actually working together to exchange information. So I'm planning on talking about that. As it turns out, the Soviet robotic craft made orbit about the same time as the flight of Apollo 11, and the main concern became keeping them out of each other's way. But in the end, the Russian robot deorbited, malfunctioned, and crashed into the lunar surface far from Apollo's landing site, and that was that. The Soviets tried a bit longer to get their moon rocket intended to take a crew to the lunar surface, called the N-1, ready, but it failed in each of the four launch attempts, and that was the end of their Humans to the Moon project. And for a while, they're robots, the Moon Project, although they did ultimately fly their little uh, Lunacod rover up to the moon, as we heard a couple of episodes ago, also from Jay. So thank you, Jay. You're always an inspiration for all of us. Cool Space News with Rod Pyle. And now time for questions from our listeners. This week's query comes from Celine. Yes, that's really her name. Celine in Arizona, who says, why is NASA so intent on returning to the moon? That is yet another good question. Thanks for asking. This has been in the planning since Donald Trump took office and was accelerated a few weeks ago when Vice President Pence took to the podium to announce that the plan had been accelerated to culminate with the return date of 2024 instead of the prior plan for 2028. This might have something to do with a second term, you think? Anyway, Pence cited threats to American space leadership from China, which is a somewhat realistic scenario, and oddly Russia, which I don't think is. At any rate, besides nationalistic concerns, the moon has a lot of natural resources that will be useful for a continuing human presence beyond low Earth orbit, where the International Space Station currently resides. There is a strong indication of water ice at the poles, which is useful for making rocket fuel, breathable oxygen, and of course, drinkable water. And seeing as it still costs thousands of dollars to launch a single pound of anything, and remember that water weighs about eight pounds per gallon, you can see how the math works here. It's really good to find this stuff already in space. There's also oxygen tied up in the lunar soil, along with glass and metals, both of which will be useful for constructing habitats to house people and possibly spacecraft components. So the moon is turning out to be a far richer resource than we had thought, a veritable treasure trove of groovy stuff we can use in space. So staking a claim to some of the more resource-rich regions is of paramount interest. It should be noted that the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, like the previous Antarctic Treaty on which it was based, forbids territorial claims in space. China's status regarding this treaty is still in flux, and not everyone who signs the treaty behaves in the ways that are ordained in any case. Hence the sense of urgency. We'll see if Congress can be convinced to spend real money on this project. Uh, pardon me again, Doc, but uh, just what did you mean by that crack about the Earth being gone? Oh, uh, I'm going to blow it up. It obstructs my view of Venus. And now it's time for this week's celebrity interview. Do it like Spock. Yes, it's finally time to talk with everyone's favorite pointy-eared, green-blooded, heartless... Uh, sorry, I was channeling Dr. McCoy there for a moment. Let's just call him everyone's favorite Vulcan. Hello, Mr. Spock. 
Hello, Mr. Spock. Are you there? I got a message from you over the time displacement intergalactic confabulator. You asked about my fascination with Barstow, California, my favorite town to disrespect. What is your concern, sir? The precise meaning of the word desert is a waterless, barren wasteland. I fail to understand your romantic nostalgia for such a place. Well, I wouldn't call it exactly nostalgia. It just represents a location that, while barren and stark, reminds us that even Barstow is a better place for a human to live than anywhere else in our solar system. Of course, there are greener and more verdant places to go for recreation if you want to. On my planet, to rest is to rest, to cease using energy. To me, it is quite illogical to run up and down on green grass using energy instead of saving it. Well, you don't have to be insulting about it. I fail to comprehend your indignation, sir. I've simply made the logical deduction that you are a liar. What, me telling untruth about one of California's more colorful communities? It's the kind of place only a Horta could love, you know? The Horta is a remarkably intelligent and sensitive creature with impeccable taste. Well, be that as it may... Quite unnecessary to raise your voice. Sorry, I, I guess I'm just intimidated by your logic. I'm, I'm doing the best I can here. We have a crew member aboard who's showing signs of stress and fatigue. Reaction time down 9 to 12%. Associational rating norm minus 3. Well, look, you don't have to be insulting, Mr. Spock. I have a heart and it can be wounded, you know. It does sound most inconvenient, however, and considered having it removed. Come on, surely you have a word for compassion on your planet. You couldn't pronounce it. Well, it kind of figures you'd say that. And I see no reason to stand here and be insulted. Okay, I guess that about wraps it up then, yes? I'm happy the affair is over. A most annoying emotional episode. Roger that, Mr. Spock, and thanks for coming on the show. Goodbye. I prefer the concrete. The graspable, the provable. I'm sure you do, Mr. Spock. I'm sure you do. Now, shall we get on with it? For our interview segment, I thought I'd revisit... It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Some of Cool Space News' greatest hits. Rob Manning, who is now the chief engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, started his career in robotic exploration on Voyager. And due to his determination, and though he'll probably cringe when he hears this, brilliance, yes, he's a humble guy, soon found himself as the engineering lead on the Mars Pathfinder mission of 1997. So I asked him, how the heck do you land on Mars? The Viking program in the 1970s, the first machines to successfully land and operate on that planet, had a then-huge budget of a billion 1970 dollars, which is about $6.3 billion in today's dollars, soft-landed with throttleable rocket motors and parachutes. But 20 years later, in the mid-1990s, that expertise that made the Viking rocket engines was no longer available, and a new method of landing the far smaller and less massive Mars Pathfinder lander and Sojourner rover needed to be developed. Rob Manning is a key figure in this task, and his story bears a rerun. Take it away, Rob. All these Mars missions start with an entry space capsule that enters the atmosphere. Um, Vikings had entered Mars from orbit, f- attached to the orbiters, and they got released and then aimed for the surface and landed. Pathfinder, we thought, well, it's, we can't afford an orbiter, so what if we just take and aim this whole vehicle to the surface of Mars? It needs something to to get solar power with, and uh, so it needs 
and propulsion on the way there to make sure we we aim properly. Uh, so we that required a cruise stage, but the cruise stage would we go with us would go with us and it would take make a collision impact with Mars. So instead of going into orbit, we we would to, to save all the fuel and complexity of cost of an orbiter, we basically aimed the whole vehicle right for the planet as we came. That 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 was called a direct entry. That was the first time that had ever been done. Uh, and at the time, it was actually rather controversial it's just because because you can't wave off. You can't say, oh, you know, it's it's like there's there's this there's it looks like there's a dust storm coming. Uh, let's go around. We'll come back. We'll come. And that's right. what Viking did. That Viking originally planned on landing on the Fourth of July. In 1976, and but they didn't. They had to wait a month to to find new landing sites after they got there. Um, so we can't, we couldn't do that. We just we had to aim for a spot and take a deep breath and just sh- shoot it in there like a bullet. Um, the other thing, so we had this entry capsule, but so we could we could take the old Viking technology for the, cap, the space capsule. We could now use composite structures like composite uh, aluminum honeycomb with composite face sheets and build a structure around it. Um, and we could use the Viking thermal protection system. Ultimately, we also need we also need to slow down after after the heat shields used. We need to slow down from about a thousand miles an hour to about two hundred miles an hour by inflating a, a massive supersonic parachute op- parachute that's opened up supersonically. Now that that we thought we could do at reasonable price because this doesn't a whole lot of new invention. Uh, but then the next step is to figure out you now how do you actually get it to the surface safely because the parachute can only get you to about 200 miles an hour because the air is so thin. Um, and that's you know that's fast that's as fast as or faster than a skydiver, right? I mean without a parachute. So so uh, we need to do something before we hit the ground. Ground and that that something was um, initially was just the thought of of using airbags and parachute only. And the idea was that the parachute was big enough and the airbags were sturdy enough, they could they could handle uh, an impact. Uh, maybe we could re- reduce the speed to say 50 miles an hour from 200 with a big enough parachute. That didn't work out. We couldn't get airbags to handle 50 to 60 mile per hour impact straight down. So, so we realized we had to do something else. So we added solid rocket motors in the in the back shell, the back part. So 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 you'd imagine a parachute way up high, a back shell suspended down, which is the back part of the space capsule, with three rockets p- pointed down inside them, and then and then down below that on a twenty meter rope is the lander, with a with little sojourner tucked inside, and that lander is surrounded. It's a te- triangular, it's a four sided pyramid, tetrahedron, and there are airbags wrapped around each one attached to the outside and inside was the lander and the and the rover and the idea is these airbags would inflate the last second before impact and then the rockets would fire uh and bringing the whole thing to a dead stop above the ground and that was the trick that we came up and we figured this was although it sounds like a rube goldberg contraption we figured we could test these things and build them much more cheaply than had we re- had we did a real full up uh soft lander uh and so that that it was basically ideas coming up right. cheap ways to, to ways to save money with design designing smart so the design for low cost so design for low cost and i think it's worth reminding people that you like viking and like the subsequent missions i might add 
this is all happening on its own. This is autonomous. This is not something you're joysticking for the ground. The messages take too long to go back and forth. So you had to design this for direct entry, no loitering in orbit and scratching your head over landing sites and thinking about when you want to head down. You have to go straight into the atmosphere and everything has to happen completely autonomously because you're getting the news That's right. 15, but the, but 18 the cool minutes thing is after this it is happens, Because right? I really didn't have a closed loop control system on it. All I had to do, all I had was a, uh, um, if we didn't have it like an inertial measurement system, the inner ear that we have to have at a, like for example, when you're landing sky crane, um, the whole software system in bo- on, inside the computer was really simple. It just timed events and, uh, and it used an accelerometer to figure out when to open the parachute. And then later on, it used a radar, very simple radar that measured altimet- altitude to figure out when to inflate the airbags and, and uh, start the rockets and then eventually cut the rope to allow the airbags to bounce on the surface of Mars. And that turned out to be pretty easy. I, in fact, I, I designed the sequence myself and, uh, and uh, I gave it to Don Meyer, who was the, the entry descent landing software programmer for me. And we worked together on it and, and then uh, we tested it with a, uh, with a small team. Um, uh, actually, a young woman at the time named Becky Manning, no relation to me, but she, she, she did all the testing. So basically the, 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 how the thing operated was basically primarily done by three of us with some, ex- with, except for processing the radar data, which was, took a little bit of effort, but it was, um, it was a pretty simple design. And that's that, I think the key to making things inexpensive is to make them simple, you know, simple, simple, simple. That's the most thing. Get rid of complexity. If you, if you, if it's, if you're going to get, if you want to keep something complex, start simple. If you want something that's super complex, start complex, and then it'll get more complex. Um, it's it's hard. It's you know keeping things simple is the is the uh, was our mantra. Yet, yet this is the cool thing. We were we we were able to find a really cool pro- computer with a lot of memory on board that allowed the software guys, the team, to men and women, I should say, and to, to do it, to, to basically take commercial off the shelf operating system, use C programming language for the first time. We put them on a VMA backplane um, uh, with these old individual computer slots. So I can actually buy commercial off the shelf computers to slide in to test it with. Um, uh, it really, the whole thing was about doing things quick and easy. And in some sense, we need a little fancy technology that if we could get it to fly, we could would save us a lot of time and effort on the staff here in Pasadena. And so uh, we did. So we had the, we had the, we had the first pretty high performance little computer um, ever flown in space. And this same computer was modified, uh, was gradually evolved, but it's, it's been basically that and it's, and it's, uh, and it's descendants have been the core computers used in our spacecraft ever since. So these are uh, commercially available, but militarized. They're they're, uh, they're, they're commercially chips, right? available. Yes, and, um, they're not just they're militarized. They're ruggedized, but they're also um, the the chips that we got. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, it was it was it was IBM that had taken their radiation hardened processing line um, uh, to build military devices, and they were able to take the commercial power PC chip. Remember the power PC that was very popular in the 90s, and they were able to take it, take it over right. to the radiation hardened line, 
and make a chip that looks just that operate just like the commercial one that you can buy for a fraction of the cost. Um, it was the same chip that's inside the the time is the Apple, Apple Macintoshes that were around it that time. And so we were able to to use to use all the commercial tools. We even we even uh, we we were even even able to take software that was free software out that was out in the in the uh, out online and put it on board our spacecraft. Uh, p- people familiar with GNU, the, the, which is a which is a, a kind of a clearinghouse for software. We we took software from all sorts of sources and put them in our spacecraft. Right. Some of that software is still flying. In fact, a friend of mine, Mark Adler, uh, who who, who uh, came to my office to suggest that we do Spirit and Opportunity, uh, he only realized quite late that the software he wrote when he was uh, in grad school uh, and uh, just out of grad school many years ago was actually flying on, on all our Mars missions because it was it was this compression decompression software that we use for Zip, that which. Uh, uh, which is one of the software programs he wrote when he was much younger. So it's it, it was it, so it was, people, people are surprised to realize that the stuff that they worked on when they were in college uh, turned out to fly to outer space, and they, we just stole it from them. We didn't steal it. it was it's it's free stuff. Free, it's freeware, but but you know that's that's how you save money. You right. use freeware, freeware, and you test the living daylights out of it. And so that's our our, our motto was test, test, test. Um, and, and the good news is that because the hardware was cheap, we could buy lots of it and we can, tr- we can, we could run it through its paces in parallel, all these different ways. And, uh, it, it really, really paid off. Uh, and that's, and that, that's how we did it. Testing software is one thing, but testing, uh, parachutes on earth for a Martian descent and testing the airbags on earth for a Martian landing well, had to have been a little more challenging, the, the, I assume. This is... This turned out to be a much bigger issue later on, but uh, we we just we did and for testing our parachutes. Um, Viking back in the in the uh, in nineteen late sixties and early seventies, ending with the final test in August of nineteen seventy one, uh, they did the series of supersonic parachute inflation tests of these large parachutes, and we said to ourselves, hey, you know, if we use the same design, similar design, we don't have to retest them. We don't have to repeat the test they did in 1971. All we have to do is make sure that that we if we open the parachute under a high load, where the because because when we open a parachute on Mars, is the air is very thin, but you're moving much faster. So, but if we could do the same kind of loading of the parachute, we thought by doing it slower down here at near sea level when the air is where the air is super thick, not a hundred and not a hundred and sixty thousand feet. And so, uh, so that was so we didn't do supersonic testing because, to be honest with you, it was too expensive. And we said, hey, you know, we don't need to because we could just over test it here, you know, drop, you know, put a big, huge lead weight on it and drop it out of an airplane or a helicopter and uh, get it up to speed before you open, inflame the parachute and then make the, force the parachute to bring a big load to a to a stop pretty quickly. So that's what we did, and it, it appeared to work. The airbags, on the, other, on the other hand, was a completely new kettle of fish. It, it was a, it, it was a, it, you know, airbags. The, the Soviet Union had used airbags at the moon um, uh, back in the uh, '60s, late and early '70s. Um, 
the ideas of using airbags at Mars dates back to that time in the 60s, uh, but it never really been tried on, a, on this kind of scale at Mars. And, and, and one of the key things that original concept of these, all these airbags is that they were vented, that when you hit the ground, there's a big hole. Like, no, it's just, you know, it's just if you were in a car accident and the, and the airbag inflated in front of your face, the, air, the reason the airbag is so soft is because as your head goes and body goes into the airbag, the air inside is vented out to the room. I mean, to the to the to the cabin, and so you're, you uh, otherwise it'd be like slamming your head into a basketball, it's, and so it just it would just feel too too hard. So uh, so that those are vented bags, and the thought right. was we'll do vented bags, and we thought we would do vented bags for Pathfinder too, until we discovered that. We didn't know how to time the opening of the vent. If you open too soon, the airbags get soft. If you open too late, the airbags get too hard. And so we said, okay, screw it. And the idea was if, you, if they vent it, you can just go poof. You just hit the ground and you just you don't bounce at all. It's just poof, like you know, dropping a, a sandbag on the ground. You know, it doesn't bounce. But so we said now, and we tried getting right, that work right, after right. Give, working on it for a while, a good fraction of a year, we gave up and said, okay. Forget it. We decided we're going to land multiple times <laughs> and just keep bouncing. And yeah, and so so we looked. That's a other, great way well, to put it. Can you think these airbags can handle uh, multiple landings? Well, the interesting thing about that, all the airbags had to be symmetric now. So because we could land in any orientation, you know, imp- actually land, we could impact in the orientation like a big beach ball. Uh, we just had the made the airbags symmetric all the way around. Uh, it's still a four sided bags and they're all interconnected it's all one giant volume it doesn't look like it from the outside but it is um, in fact you could climb inside and have tea inside it's so large there's 50 cubic meters of space inside there uh in fact i, I haven't had tea in it but i've been i crawled around inside those bags there's plenty of room you can stand up and so uh so uh so so the trick is how do you test airbags for mars that bounce well, airbags don't bounce. If you take a big, heavy airbag with a big, I mean, a big lander and you drop it here, even drop it at the right um, speed, ignoring our gravity, it's, it would, airbag would break. The way to, you have to test airbags in low pressure environment because they're much spongier when you put under a low pressure environment. Uh, so we have to take, we have to go find a place that simulated Mars atmosphere density. The, uh, the pressure, and that would be the world's largest vacuum chamber in Sandusky, Ohio, at the, at the Plumbrook Station, run by Glenn Research Center, that uh, which is a part of NASA. And so we took a, our airbags there, and we said we needed to ba- first bounce them vertically. So we put a big flat plant of a, a, a platform of rock, and and a wooden platform, and we bolted rocks down and bounced around on that for a bit. Uh, found out we were tearing the airbags. We'd have to keep fixing those. And we eventually got to the point we felt the bags were nice and strong because we were iterating on the design. Then we tried again, this time with a ramp that was tilted up 60 degrees. Why 60 degrees? Well, because there's a reasonable probability because of how the rockets get jog- jostled around by the by the wind and by the parachute that, they, that the rockets aren't exactly going pointed up and down toward the ground. They're not pointing toward the ground when they fire. They could be off at an angle, which means that, oh yeah, it'll slow you down vertically a little bit, but they're going to take you to the right. And you you hightail it to the right quite a ways. And you might be going going up to speeds of like 50, 60 miles an hour horizontally. 
And so that when they hit the ground, it's not, it's a more of a grazing impact than a vertical impact. Holy smokes. These airbag, can these airbags handle that? Well, we had to find out. And so we, we drop tested them on the 60 degree tall rock, pla- rock platform that was literally 60 feet high, full of these big boulders that we bolted, which mm. by the way, hard to find boulders in Ohio. We have to, we had them, had them, <laughs> we had to have them <laughs> shipped from Arizona of that. and, uh, you know, for the kind of rocks we were looking oh for. Gosh. And so, uh, uh, in fact, I went to Home Depot looking for, you know, fake rocks, which, which we could send them. And then we would just have them fill them with, with concrete and then bolt them on there. Uh, uh, so I went to Home Depot and, uh, was looking around at these fake rocks that they had in those days. And the guy was saying, what, what do you want at these, uh, you, you guys doing a, uh, decoration? I was with my wife. Are you guys doing, de- you know, some sort of decorations? No, no, I want it. This is for Marsh Project. I know. So he goes like, and I Mars need 60 of them and I need I go, them Yeah. So we're making a lander and we're trying to test it on rocks. And we thought, I thought about using some of these rocks. And he goes, Oh, wow. You work for NASA? I go, Yeah. He says, Hey, do you know with truth? I go, uh, What are you talking about? And he goes, can, You can tell me. Is it true that angels are really aliens? And I go, I looked at my wife. Nice. And I go, I don't have time. I was thinking, I don't really have time to talk to this guy. Um, so I said, I'm sorry. I'm not at liberty to discuss this. <laughs> and then you talked. Up <laughs> so he said, I should have. He's I right here. Come get him. My wife gave me the meanest look. Oh, man. She goes, what if you do? You're just you're just messing with the guy. Come on. Stop it. So I, I said, no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, but. Uh, I don't know anything about angels and aliens. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm very poor in both departments. <laughs> so that's, that's rocks. That's the rocks. So, so we got rocks so there. You... We tested, we dropped, test these airbags, the airbags ripped and just torn. We had to add new abrasion layers. We changed the design over and over again. Finally, we finally, finally, at the very last, we finally got this, an airbag design that worked uh, just in the bloody nick of time because we actually made a set of airbags for the last set of tests, but because we're running out of time there, we had to send another test set of airbags to, to Florida to put on the actual flight vehicle. <laughs> so we, we were testing the, it's this du- the oh duplicate if, and finally the duplicate worked and so, because if the duplicate didn't work, the ones we sent to Florida to put on the spacecraft, uh, we're not going to cut it either. So, but we managed, we managed to make it through. That was probably the hardest, the hardest challenge a Pathfinder had was getting these silly airbags to, uh, to work. And that's it for this episode of Cool Space News. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new interview, breaking space news, and lots of other fun and interesting stuff. Be sure to send any questions you might have on Twitter. My handle is at Cool Space News AM. That's at Cool Space News AM. Thanks for joining us, and always remember, be humble if you're made of Earth, be noble if you're made of stars. See you next time. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.